Hello, everybody, and welcome to Masters of Social Gastronomy. Uh, hi, Soma. Hey, Sarah, what's up? Uh, we're doing a show about diners tonight. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Here's how this goes. We do three 20-minute talks. Uh, I'm going to start, and I'm going to be talking a lot about the history of the diner, uh, where the word came from, what the first diners looked like. Um, after my talk, we're going to have a little break, so you can get yourself another delicious David Attenborough beer. And then after the break, we have what's called story time, which is our catch-all for things that didn't fit into our presentation, which I think you had this experience, too. Like, I found way more stuff than I thought I was going to find and was a little overwhelmed like crafting my narrative because there was so much I could talk about. I could have like a hundred story times but <laughs> instead there's only one but I have a contest in mind. You get yeah. to win prizes. Yeah. That should be exciting. You're not excited. That's okay. It's okay. I've seen the prizes. It's going to be trash. fun. Everything's terrible. So we're going to have game. a little bit of a contest and um, I'm just mine is just I'm going to talk about one more sort of New York local spot that's really beloved to me and tell a little bit about the history. We'll take one more break, and then we come back with Soma. And what are you talking about for your, your main business? Denny's and Waffle House, the only Sweet. true diners. And we were listening to some very special music coming in tonight. What were we listening to? Uh, <laughs> Jukebox Hits, uh, Volumes 1 and 2 by Waffle House Records. <laughs> I'll talk more about that later. Super. It was and either that or Good Charlotte. So. Right, that's on the Denny's playlist, correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. So, um, what, what do we, do you want, do I talk about the thing first? Sure, yeah, go, yeah, go, go. go nuts. So just a quick little couple promos. Um, so we have a podcast, if you weren't aware. This show is recorded live, and we air it on iTunes and SoundCloud and Spotify on a couple month delay. So if you miss a night or you want to share what you heard tonight with some friends, you should subscribe to us on iTunes. Our last one that went up, oh, a fave, what goes in must comes out the Secret Lives Your Gastrointestinal track, which uh, we had a special guest talk about toilets and fatbergs, and almost immediately afterwards, those low fatbergs signs went They're up. They're everywhere. Yeah. I love them. And so now, thanks to my friend Tammy for sent me a photo of one. Uh, no, I can't. I can never think fatbergs. I always think low fatbergs. Um, but we are back on Monday, June twenty fourth. We're going to be talking about fake meat. And we're also going to have a special guest talking about, uh, he's done a lot of research into the Impossible Burger, which we both ate at the Cleveland Hopkins International Airport together. I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything about that thing. All right. We'll save it for June. Yeah. So we'll it. be back in June. We're always here the last Monday of every month. What do you want to, what is going on with you? What are you doing? I took the GRE, Ooh. which was pretty exciting. Um, so... <laughs> It's, it it so doesn't make for a very exciting Instagram story. I will tell you that. Yeah, so it was literally nothing. But I studied for two weeks, and I just Instagrammed the hell out of it. It was amazing. Um, but because I suffered for their GRE, there will be GRE-themed GRE questions Ugh. about combinatorics and permutations during the course of my talk, of course. Um, and since I took this, and I hopefully will be rewarded by graduate school, you can be rewarded with Waffle House mugs by not the combinatorics questions. That will get you different mugs. But if you win other things, you will win these beautiful, beautiful Waffle House mugs, which are from WaffleHouseStore.com or something. It's great. The official Waffle House store. Cool. They didn't pay me. Should we... Let's get started. Talk about diners? Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, put your hands together for our first speaker of the night, Sarah Lohman of Four Pounds Flower. Thank you. I can never find the opening in the cur curtain. 
Okay, topic, if you haven't caught on already, is diners. So, um, diners, what are they? Where do they come from? Mr. Walter Scott, some guy, that guy, looks like every other guy from the 19th century, essentially, that you get to hear anything about. Um, he, in 1858, uh, was making a little bit extra money. He was a printer's assistant. I guess you don't make a lot of dough as a printer's assistant. So he would go out late nights, and he had a basket that he would sell sandwiches and things out of, mostly to people who, um, this was in Providence, Rhode Island, were working at the Providence newspaper. So people that were like up late, working overnight, getting that early edition, he would show up between 8 p.m. and midnight and serve them food. And uh, within less than 20 years, he was successful enough that he decided to quit his printing job and he bought a wagon, a horse and wagon, and started doing these overnight lunch counters. This isn't his, but this is one of the many spin-offs of his lunch counters. Um, they're basically, you know, like food trucks. Like this is the, the earliest type of food truck and they were designed to come out when most restaurants closed. Most restaurants at the end of the 19th century were closing around 8 p.m. So people who worked late or worked overnight didn't have access to food and Walter Scott and the many people who replicated him found a niche that they could be very successful in. And this is like basic stuff, like the menu up here says hamburgers, Frankfurt, guess we didn't have the energy to put the ER on that one, buttermilk, I have a friend who specifically loves it when, when menus in the 19th century sold buttermilk, which is a little unusual, and pop, so this must be in the Midwest. Everything's five cents, so you just roll up and get yourself a snack. So. Within a decade, there we go. Within a decade, there were companies that were that were prefabbing these lunch wagons, and um, they start to call them rolling restaurants because they begin to transition from a place where you walk up to a window and someone in, there's a kitchen inside and someone is serving out the window to they started um, making the kitchen half size and then adding like a counter with seats inside so that in the case the weather was bad or if it was cold you could actually go inside to these mobile restaurants and sit down and have something to eat same like basic foods like sandwiches maybe soups stuff like that but now so this um, says C.H. Palmer manufacturer of every description of night lunch wagons and cafes you can see they get pretty jazzy too that this one has stars and decorations because they want to be visual you want to be able to pick them out on the street a selection of lunch wagons always in stock so that an order may be filled at once lunch wagons to let you can rent them and this is one of the big ones that was coming out of uh, Worcester Massachusetts um, that was founded in 1887 so if you wanted to get into the the night lunch wagon business you just ordered from one of at this point three different companies that were prefabbing them from um, what either were basically like covered wagons or sometimes they were um, what well a really fun word, omnibuses. Omnibuses were horse-drawn wagons on rails that were some of the earliest forms of public transportation in big cities like New York, and the origin of the word buses. So the next time you're on a boring old bus, just remember that you're actually riding an omnibus. By the 1890s, um, the what is getting prefab begins to change. So we change from taking street like basically horse covered wagons or omnibuses 
and the prefabbers start using either streetcars or rail cars, like late 19th century rail cars. So this is sort of all leading up to that there is this classic diner look that's like the, a diner in the shape of a railway car. And that is this natural progression of diners were always built or originally built inside these mobile devices, whether it was an omnibus, a streetcar, a horse and wagon. This is essentially a streetcar. The T.H. Buckley Car Manufacturing Company is um, another one that came out of Worcester that was making these prefab lunch wagons. And then this is a quick lunch um, that's made out of an early rail car. And a lot of, and they were actually using dining cars too, since the seats were there, the counters were there, sometimes the kitchens were already in place too. So they, they were buying them from railroad companies, these prefab companies were um, working on them, changing what needed to be changed, then you could purchase them and then they would ship it to you too. So it was all this very, very easy system as well. This one you can tell is not going anywhere. It's a permanent space. It has this little steps to walk up to it. The first, per like, um, permanent is not quite the, well, permanent, but the first diner that doesn't move is founded in 1913 out in Jersey, I believe. Um, so we go from 1870s all the way through 1913. The idea is that these are little movable restaurants to in 1913, they finally start staying in one place, which is what this one looks like. And then of course, this is a very old sale train car, but by the 1930s, um, most diners are made from rehab train cars um, and there are sort of the modern steel versions as opposed to wooden versions. And then they're additionally adorned with neon and stainless steel um, so that they look really futuristic in a way. Um, they're supposed to look modern and fancy and shiny and a little sci-fi to begin to draw people in. So it's sort of interesting to me that they're re that they're acquiring the streetcars, omnibuses, and rail cars because they were different forms of transportation that were outmoded, but then they're being refurbished to look like they're from the future. So it's an interesting dichotomy in my mind. And then in the 1930s is when we start to get that classic diner interior with the tile floors and the little spinny seats and a marble or later, um, lucite is not the word I want, you know, the Formica, thank you. Classic Formica countertop too. And of course all the chrome and all the stainless steel and all the patterns and all the shininess. That's a very 1930s look. I really love this image because it shows the sort of in with the new out with the old. So this is um, one of those covered horse wagons that was made permanent. Um, the, and Night Owl, even though this is a name for the specific diner, is also um, was a broad nickname for these overnight lunch counters. Um, and then the same owner was replacing it with a new like chrome and steel modern version of the 1930s. So this is a moment where they're both on site before the little old one is torn down. So the design is changing over time. Uh, anybody here from New Jersey? <laughs> Are you ashamed of it? <laughs> yes. I'm gonna compliment you for God's sakes. You are the diner capital of the world. Congratulations. <laughs> New Jersey has more diners than any other state. Currently that's about 525 diners. Um, and also for many years, they were the state that manufactured the most diners. Three of the largest diner manufacturers were in New Jersey, including Coleman Diner Car, Car, uh, diner car Company Incorporated out there in Newark, 
Coleman actually just folded in 2011. And around that time, there were still two other dining car manufacturers um, open operating, but I don't, I haven't found any sign that any of them still exist. There's not a huge demand because things are changing, but we'll get to that. But at least up until 2011, 2012, 2013, these companies were still occasionally making these classic like converted railway, I'll bring them to your site, dining cars. And in fact, most of the ones that are anywhere in the country were made in New Jersey. And dining cars as a whole, diners, were focused on New England, but of course you can find them all over the country, but there were certainly a lot more of them from New York and up through New England. And the word diner is just simply a shortening of dining car, since a lot of these were being made from the dining cars of trains. So we went from calling them like lunch wagons to night lunch wagons to night owls to dining cars to shortening that to diner. So we have both like the look of them as these portable prefab containers. We've got the name of them. And in the 1940s and 50s, the inside, who's a, who is a going to these diners is starting to change a little bit. Up until this point, the diners are mostly focused on men. There's really cheap eats. They're kind of known as being a little like greasy spoon. And it's mostly men that are working overnight jobs. So it would be going to these late night establishments. But in the 1940s and 50s, industry is changing. So factories that used to be in cities are now moving more out to industrial parks and moving out to the suburbs. So diners do one of two things. If they're in the city, they just sort of start to change their image to be more accommodating for women. You can see in this, this diner, which has got to be in the city somewhere, that there is a solid mix of both men and women. This is also a time when more women are entering the workforce, that they are in the city during the day, um, whereas opposed to traditionally, you could just stop and eat lunch in the middle of your day, or you work close enough to home to be able to go home and eat lunch. Now both men and women are commuting from, in the case of New York, from Queens and Brooklyn into Manhattan to work, and eat a cheap place to eat lunch every day. And so diners, at least in New York City, came in to sort of fill that niche. But the flip side of it is that since the diners were in fact, portable standalone structures in most of the country, they just picked up and moved. And they went out, they tend to occupy these spaces between the city and the suburbs. Think about wherever you grew up, where you would go to a diner. New York is a little bit of an exception because especially here in Manhattan, we don't have a lot of these um, stand standalone uh, structures. And we'll, we'll talk more about that, because some people are diner snobs, and they say that a diner can only be a standalone uh, prefab rail car, and I think that's ridiculous. I think that that name came about in the 1950s, and, and um, similar eateries that were in other buildings were often called coffee shops. But in 2019, coffee shop has a very different meeting, and diner has now taken over what maybe 60 years ago someone would have called a coffee shop. So all of that aside, when you think about where that diner you went to maybe when you were a gothy teenager and where that was located, I grew up really rural, but the diners we went to were in the sort of larger towns nearby, so they weren't suburbs. I didn't live in a suburb, and they weren't sort of in like a suburb. Um, they weren't in a place where there were a lot of houses. They were in business districts near suburbs and near cities. So that's kind of where a diner lives, in that place in between, where it's hitting not only people who are maybe commuting to or from work, 
Um, but it also becomes a symbol of like wholesome family life because at this time, they're not serving alcohol. So it becomes this place, um, they begin gearing themselves towards women by cleaning up the decor, offering different menus. Some diners even added the word miss to their name just to communicate, I guess, the miss diner, ladies are welcome. Um, and then if women are going, especially in the 1950s and 60s, that's almost automatically making it a family environment. And even the interiors change to be a little bit more homey and a little bit more kitsch and to um, use current design trends. And they wanted, they were really a part of setting this trend of eating outside of your home. That going out for a meal was something that you did and could do as a family. And this was new, really, for most of American history before this. Restaurants and bars, most public spaces, were pretty much for men, with some exceptions for specific types of restaurants or specific culturals, uh, cultures within America, let's say. Like the Germans, um, their bars were really family-oriented, whereas American and Irish bars were not, for example. So now the diner environment is sort of replacing the bar and making that a family-friendly environment and making it not all the way into the city and a little bit closer to home, so it's accessible. So I want to talk specifically about a New York tradition, the Greek diner. So um, 20 years ago, 90% of the diners in New York City had Greek owners. And 10 years ago, 70% of diners had Greek owners. I couldn't find any current statistics, but I'm going to guess it's now in the range of about 50%. Because all of those, um, the, the men predominantly that bought and owned those diners in the second half of the 20th century are of retirement age. They're late 60s, 70s, even 80s. And working uh, a 24-hour establishment, as diners became starting in the middle of the 19th century, uh, you're working 16 hours a day, even as an owner. And especially for immigrant families, it's often seen that food is what the first generation does. It's what you do when maybe you don't have a lot of access to English. You can make food. Um, the, the, the story arc of almost every Greek diner is that I started as a dishwasher, and then I was a busboy, and then I was a short order cook, and then I was a waiter, and then finally it saved up enough money to buy my own diner. And then someone else came and went through the process all over again. So you're also coming into a community that is also Greek, and that is helping to support you as you're new here. In this case, specifically Greek, but this is you can take this story and these logistics and apply it to any immigrant group that's come over the last 150 years, essentially. And in New York, the business that the Greek community went into was diners. Happened during this time because in 1965, we overturned um, some race-based immigration laws that were specifically tar targeting, amongst other groups, Southern European Catholics. And when those laws were repealed in 1965, they'd been in place since the 1920s, um, that opened the door to the Greek population and then that second wave Italian immigration as well. So a lot of Greek people came to this country in the 1960s that within 20 years were becoming went from workers to owners of diners. And they're so synonymous with Greek culture, Greek diner culture in New York City that when you buy, you know, a, a takeout coffee, that's why it has this like Greek-ish design on it because Greeks owned all the coffee shops and all the diners for about 50 years in this city. The reason the Greek immigrants went into diners is because coffee houses are a big part of Greek culture. They're called uh, cafe neons. I don't speak Greek. I'm so sorry. But there are these male public hangout spots uh, where guys would come together, drink coffee, talk about work, network, things like that. So that sort of community was brought to America both in the form of coffee houses like this for a Greek community, 
But then since both men had I many men had either owned, worked in, or attended one of these coffee houses back home, they had a familiarity with this business and how to create a restaurant and coffee house that creates community in different neighborhoods. It's really with these Greek owners that the diners became 24 hours and took on, again, most of these are not standalone structures, although you do see that out in Brooklyn and Queens. Again, those places between the city and the suburbs, that's where you find the standalone diners. But also, you know, we're used more used to that, like here in the city in Manhattan, and we're used to them being 24 hours. And there is a lot of friendly competition during this era, too, and a part of that is that the interiors get really flashy. The owners that are interviewed in the New York Times sort of in this era, they, they all talk about wanting to make their place look really nice. And so that's how, why you walk into a diner and you see like etched glass and the fancy booths and sometimes like hanging chandeliers and all these really over the top things that you don't think would go into like a relatively inexpensive eating place. That was a scene as a way to compete with your neighbors. The other way to compete was through your huge menus. So I mentioned those early diners had simple stuff. You got a hamburger, you got a hot dog, you got a sandwich, you got some coffee, you got some buttermilk, but that was pretty much it. This is the Bel Air, Bel Air Diner. It is out on 21st Street and Broadway in Astoria. I've probably gone to this diner more than any other in New York City. And here is one page of their menu. Um, so on this page, you have triple decker sandwiches, you have hot dogs, you have Bel Air sandwiches. On this page, you have crispy cold salads. You have specialty salads. You have um, a whole page of burgers, or it can be turkey, beef, or grilled chicken. Same menu on this page. <laughs> Here are your appetizers, your seafood appetizers, your, sa your side orders, your pasta saute specials, your chicken Manhattan, your chicken San Francisco, your chicken a la maison. And then this page, you've got your uh, Italian specialties, your Greek specialties, your vegetarian dishes, your uh, fish, whole filet and fried, your saute specials, your entrees, in case those other things weren't entrees. And one thing that I was not able to find any real answers to, but of course, this diner, like many in New York, has a full bar and a cocktail menu, which I have never seen that anywhere else in the country. I don't know why that, I mean, probably for the same reason, honestly. The menus were described in one interview where, um, God, I, this sounds disgusting to me, but I don't know if it's on a menu anywhere. But in the 90s, one Greek diner introduced a dish they called um, stuffed shrimp. And it was shrimp stuffed with crab meat. And no one ever heard of such a thing. But then in the next month, every single diner in New York City was serving it because they had to compete. So my guess is one diner decided to get a liquor license and have a full bar. And that meant that every other diner in the city was like, well, we have to have a full bar now, too. So you can go and you can get a grilled cheese sandwich and a Manhattan, and that's New York City. So the era of the Greek diner, though, is ending, as I mentioned. Um, this is, and I'm sorry, I don't remember his name at the top of my head, um, but this fella here, he's an immigrant from uh, Korea. He is 53, and he just bought a Greek diner that had been owned by a Greek family for 25 years because the former owner was retiring. So the diners, on one hand, are getting passed into the hands of new immigrants, a new wave of immigrants that they themselves started as dishwashers and worked their way up to busboys and worked their way up until they could afford to buy a diner. Um, diners are also disappearing at large in New York City because of the reasons that every good business is disappearing in New York City, that especially in the corner storefronts and freestanding buildings that diners occupy, those are prime spots for banks and drugstores which is uh, one of the biggest reasons that many 
small businesses are losing their leases um, all across New York City because landlords want to wait out for a higher paying tenant like a bank or a drugstore. Um, and these are mom and pop businesses. The similarities between them had to do with competition and also a lot of them were buying ingredients from the same places even though everything is produced in house. In fact, the Greek diners sort of formed unions where they would buy things wholesale even though they were each individual businesses and divided up among them. So a lot of people are lamenting the loss and changes that are happening in the diners, that if the old Greek owners go away, it's not going to be the same. They won't remember my order and different immigrants, and rah, 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 which is a classic New York, you know, whatever. Honestly, the bank and the drugstore part really sucks, but the other half of it is just this sort of natural change that New York has always gone through. And to wrap up, I just wanted to um, focus on one diner that I love in particular, yeah, right? <laughs> I know, it's just like, and that's exactly it. That warm, fuzzy you're feeling right now, that is exactly why diners are so beloved in New York and beyond, um, because they create that sort of love and community on their blocks. This is B&H Dairy Lunch. Um, so the photo is from somewhere shortly after it was founded. It's founded in 1938 on 2nd Avenue, a couple, couple blocks north of here, seven, seven blocks north of here, something like that. Um, and when it was founded, that neighborhood was known for Yiddish theater. It would later have the Orpheum um, and be not too far from places like CBGB. So in the 70s and 80s, it was like a big concert punk scene. When it was founded, it was a big Yiddish theater neighborhood. Um, and the two owners that founded it were Jewish, founded by Abby Bergson and uh, Samuel Heller. Later, um, Heller left, and a guy named Sol Halson, I believe, took over. So that's the origin of the B and H for Bergson and Heller. But when Holson came in, he said, well, let's just say it stands for better health, because that's what our food promotes. Um, this is Abby Bergson and his wife manning the counters in the 1950s. Um, here he is behind the counter in the 1950s. And then this next photo is my favorite. I want to have it blown up and put on my wall. There it is in 1961, looking exactly the fucking same as it does in 2019. And just uh, such a beautiful image, too. And you can look out the door, and you can see the Orpheum Theater across the way there, too, get a sense of what the neighborhood was like at that time. So it stayed with Bergson uh, until 1970. 1970, he uh, sold B&H Dairy to one of his countermen. Um, and I should say it's B&H Dairy because it is a kosher restaurant. Um, it's founded as one, still is today. In kosher law, you separate meat and dairy, and dairy restaurants used to be just as common as delicatessens in New York City, but now they're, they're kind of a rarity. So um, everything that you eat there has no meat in it, and they continue to be kosher certified. Despite the fact that in 2003, it was bought by Fazi Ab Abdelwahed and Ola Shmilaka. He's from Egypt and Muslim. She's from Poland and Catholic. Um, they met because they both worked in the neighborhood, got married in 2003, and, and bought B&H not too long after that together. Um, they have kept their kosher certification. In fact, um, Ola says that the rabbi who comes in to check out the kitchen usually sits down and has a meal, too. And they've continued to promote this sense of community in the neighborhood. Only five people work there, <laughs> so it's the two of them, two counter guys, and someone in the kitchen. That's essentially it. Oh, and they eventually got divorced, but they still run this restaurant together, so God bless them. It's fine. Div divorces aren't sad. Speak from someone who knows. Divorces aren't sad. They're usually a great idea if you decide to go that far. 
what is amazing is that they both had that revelation and were still like, yeah, we can still do this business together. Especially because 2015, you might remember we had that explosion on the corner, right? Took the lives of three people and took a, a couple beloved businesses out as well. Luckily, B&H uh, wasn't harmed physically by the explosion. However, they were hooked up to the same gas line because you remember that the building exploded because the landlord of that building had illegally tapped into a city gas line. So they had to get a new gas line. They had to tap into a new gas line, had to get it laid out, and then shortly afterwards, the city put new fireproofing laws in on that block. And so they ended up having, they thought they'd be open within a week. They had to totally redo their, their kitchen and it took five months. They thought this was gonna be it. Because when it comes down to it, businesses like these in New York City are fragile. Um, rent, their rent is $10,000 a month, and that is generously cheap for New York City. I was just reading about Whisk in Williamsburg, and they had their rent jacked up to $26,000 a month. Right. So yes, this is exactly what's going on in New York City. So missing five months of business, how do you survive that? Well, B&H survived it because um, a couple of their loyal customers started a Kickstarter page and raised $50,000. So not only did they pay their rent, but they managed to have leftover money to pay back pay to their counter guys too. So it closed down in March, it finally reopened in August, and that meant it got to celebrate 80 years on the Lower East Side in August of 2018. And I snapped this photo um, just a few months ago because I don't think anything says it better than their shirts. The fact that it says, Jala por favor, it's worn by one of their Mexican counter guys, Leo, um, that it's run by someone from Poland and someone from Egypt, um, but adheres to these strict kosher dairy laws. It's lovely. And if you haven't eaten there, you should definitely go in sometime. I recommend the soup and challah special. So in closing, brief digression to stick with me. As I was reading through different articles about diners, interestingly, a lot of them were written by foreign newspapers and talking about how the diner was a symbol of Americana. And uh, the BBC said that diners are as important for Americans as pubs are to British people. And I thought, isn't that interesting? And the idea of the diners as community space actually made me think about something else I know a lot about, which is German lager beer halls in the 19th century. These I mentioned a little earlier were family spaces, um, the first sort of bars where women and children were welcome in the, in the city. And I realized that there's a couple different things going on for New Yorkers um, and for Americans in diners. One is their community gathering places, right? We live in small spaces. We don't do a lot of entertaining at home. And we live, you know, at Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan. So usually every friend group has got that meetup spot, right? I'll just meet me at the diner. Like, we'll get together there. So much like these beer halls in the 19th century and bars in New York uh, were these outdoor living rooms, the diner has become our outdoor living room, too. I also read one article that mentioned um, that pointed out that diners are where politicians go to connect to local people when they're out on the campaign trail. This is Barack Obama in 2008 in a classic railway diner car. Um, and that too is very 19th century New York because that was a gathering place, especially for men who were the only people that could vote at the time. Politicians went to bars and made their speeches, bought rounds of drinks. You even went to vote in local bars. And in American culture, which is 
we're really kind of a temperate culture. I know that's crazy to say while we're here with our beers, but we are, um, we come from a lot of conservative Christianity. We come from a temperance movement. We did that whole prohibition thing. That is a part of our culture, which is not entirely a negative thing. It means that it has brought about these family spaces that are for the most part alcohol free, where men, women, and children can hang out together like these diner cars. And even though the politics have been taken out of bars in the 21st century, there's still places, the diners and other places where the politicians go. And I thought about that idea of they're as important as pubs are to British people. Well, our drinking age is higher than most of Europe, right? Definitely higher than in the UK, where people can have a drink at 18, 19. So when you're American, what do you do with those three or four intervening years where you're no longer like a teenager in high school, but you can't go to the bar? Well, you definitely go to the diner. <laughs> the diner is a place where when you are not quite an adult, but not a kid anymore, you go to begin testing those boundaries with your parents. You go to have adult conversations. You definitely go to smoke clove cigarettes, especially if it's a Denny's in the 90s. <laughs> So the diner is something that maybe we take for granted day to day, but it, after thinking about it as I was prepping to talk to you all the night, it really made me think about what a cornerstone it is for American culture and probably what a big part it's played in all of your lives. So take a break, have a beer. We'll be back in 10. Thank you so much. All right, welcome back, everybody. If you're still getting a drink at the bar, don't panic. Um, I just noticed that in our green room, there's a random cup that was holding pens and pencils, and it is an absolute vodka cup that is mimicking the Greek diner takeout cups. And I just thought that was so funny. And honestly, it, I'd always wondered why like, the iconic cup was, had Greek key and stuff on it. Now we know. So normally we do this the opposite way, where um, you're tired of talking to me, so you get to listen to the dulcet tons of tones of Soma's voice for a while. But not tonight. But not tonight, because mine is a little bit of a continuation of mine, and uh, his presentation is an introduction to what he's going to talk about. So I just want to talk about if you, yeah, as much as I love, I love B and H, and here's another place I love just as much, the Nomati Parlor. Yeah. Don't know when this photo is from, but Nomati Parlor was founded in 1920. So it is almost 100 years old, which is really remarkable, um, especially considering it's a restaurant in Chinatown and there was not a lot of Chinese immigration between 1882 and 1965. Again, when those same race-based immigration laws were lifted that allowed a spike in Greek immigration, that's really when Chinatown uh, became the neighborhood that it is today. However, Chinatown has been in New York in one way or another since the 1830s, and the center of Chinatown for a really long time was Doyer Street a street which I physically palpably love because- It's the best street. It's the best street, it's I didn't know best. you liked it too. You can see like 17 barbershops by standing in one place. <sighs> you can get in a gang fight there and cops can't see you because it twists. Yes, and I love it because New York, as you know, is a grid and we're used to walking on these streets that are both, uh, so 1811, all of Manhattan was, the grid was laid out. So that meant that not only we decided the blocks are gonna be this big and here's where they are, but we also leveled the land. We filled in lakes and we carved down hills. So there really isn't a lot of a grade for most streets in Manhattan. 
And then, so this is right off of Chatham Square, which six streets come together in Chatham Square. It's this huge transportation hub, feels very urban. And then you duck down this street, and it is this, it curves like this around a corner, and it goes up and down a little bit, and it feels so not a part of New York. Like, this is a street, like how a street looks in Boston. But also, there is something a little off about it, like a, a little Lovecraftian about it, because it does come together at such weird angles. And the crook in the street is very famous because there historically were Chinese gangs operating in this neighborhood. And that is when you went around that corner and you couldn't see what was around the corner, that's where you got murdered. So it also had the nickname the Bloody Angle. And I love this shot because, all right, so here it is. This is a late 19th century photo. Don't know the date for it. This is a photo I took yesterday. Do, 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 like pretty much the same. And that building at the end of the street to the alleyway um, is the same one in this picture, just sh um, shorter. Uh, sidebar in the 70s and 60s, 70s, and 80s when um, New York, Man Manhattan was pretty empty. A lot of landlords, they're taxed based on how many floors the buildings were. So a lot of uh, extra levels were taken off of buildings because people weren't living upstairs. It was just commercial spaces in the bottom level. So if you look close, especially at buildings downtown, you can see the seam where the first two levels are old brick and then they were rebuilt again in the you know early 2000s with new brick. And then of course now, especially on Lower East Side, they're building like whole other buildings on top of buildings. So a lot of buildings will have three different layers of it being built up. Anyway, so there it is right there in the crook since 1920. Um, couple other cool photos of it from the past. Um, Nomwa Tea Parlor started as a dim sum place. So dis dim sum is a part traditionally of Cantonese culture, but up about a thousand years ago spread pretty broadly all over China. The first immigrants to come to America were from the province of Guangdong, which um, is also called Canton too. And so they brought these Cantonese traditions. Dim sum was served in tea houses. There were often along frequently traveled roadways. It's where you'd stop and have like a little snack. Um, a really good dim sum place, like a really good one, will serve a hundred different types of dim sum. And most places um, that serve dim sum serve it for breakfast. And you sit in a big hall, and people go by with carts that have various dishes on it. And you point, and you order it, and that's how it works. Nomoa has always been a little different. I mean, even from way back in this probably the 20s or 30s, they ha already had this sort of, um, they called themselves, a, a soda, they had soda fountain service inside, too. So they were already combining um, Chinese traditional food in that they were serving dim sum with sort of these modern American ideas of diners and soda fountains. And the interior really speaks to that as well. I don't know exactly when their sort of very diner like chrome and tile and counter service interior went in, but uh, when it was last renovated, they didn't, they restored it but didn't change it. Um, and the facade has been there since 1968, and the interior is probably earlier. So even the inside of this restaurant in the heart of Chinatown has this very like American diner vibe, despite the fact that they also serve very traditional Chinese food. Um, here's a sign, this again looks like from the 30s or 40s, advertising their dim sum. Um, and part of, their, part of their vibe right now is that, so Noma was owned by the same family until 1970. Um, and then it was sold to someone who had already been working there for 30 years, a guy named Wally Tang, himself a Chinese immigrant. Wally Tang operated until 2003 when his nephew, Wilson Tang, decided to take it over. Now, Wilson Tang has a business degree from Pace. Took me a second. I was thinking Purdue. He has a business degree from Pace. 
born in America, young guy, and his parents were unhappy. <laughs> They're still unhappy. Because again, it's that idea that if you've come to America, you've made these sacrifices, working in food is particularly difficult, you want better for your kids. Be a doctor, be a lawyer. If you're not that smart, be an accountant. Not my words, <laughs> that's a quote. But he always came back to food, and he always, he loved the restaurant. So not only did he take it over, he began to adjust it even more. Uh, Nomois was always a little flexible in its Chinese-American identity. And so he now keeps it open late. So as opposed to serving this traditionally in the morning as a breakfast food, he also caters to a dinner and hungover crowd late, late, late at night. I guess it's actually a drunk crowd. So he goes from the hangovers to all the drinking again in the form of dim sum. Um, they also, s in addition to a really, really great selection of tea, they also serve beer on the premise too. Um, and he's uh, not really franchised, but there's a couple locations now. There is one on mm, Delancey Street, and there's also one in Philadelphia, and there's more plans to expand the brand. But when he came in, he also kept the chef that had been working there for 30 years, so he kept a lot of the traditional dishes. The one they're most famous for is called the original egg roll. It is not what uh, takeout egg rolls have... Um, it is not the ancestor of takeout egg rolls, but it is sort of their own take on a takeout egg roll. It is a fried egg crepe wrapped around a chicken, celery, um, uh, water chestnut that is very delicious. But they do the whole nine yards of dim sum, and I love it there. And I love the interior, and I love the people there, and it's wonderful. So if you haven't been, Too you should cute. definitely go. And then hang out on Doyer Street. Don't get killed. Don't get killed. No bleeding. It's not a murdery place yeah. anymore. Definitely um, is. So that's it for the history of diners. Someone's going to bring us a little bit up to the present. Yeah, enough of this history shit. All right. So, okay. So you go to Waffle House, right? Yeah. Why aren't we there now? We're in New York. Okay, so we say, hey, we want some food, and then make us our food. The thing is, when it goes from uh, the person who is waiting on us to the line cook, usually at a diner, um, they have a ticket system where they will write down or print out what the order is for, and they'll put it on one of these things, and then they'll work through it and pull it down and send it out, and it's wonderful. They do not do that at Waffle House. Are you ready to jump in on your thing? Because yes. this is—it's the most exciting thing. Yeah. Okay, so it is called the magic marker system. It doesn't have anything to do with magic markers. It's a system for marking what the order will be um, by magic. Uh, so what you do is instead of writing down the order on a ticket or printing it on a ticket, you put down an empty plate, and using a cunning set of jelly wrappers and uh, Butter mayonnaise packet. packets and ketchup packets, Syrup. flipping them up and down, moving them around on the plate, you get to say what it is that the order is for. So let me give an example, and then you can explain your okay. crazy story that you just told me like an hour ago. Okay. So when you go to Waffle House, let's say you order eggs. In the magic marker marking system, jelly, a packet of jelly stands for eggs. So it goes on the plate, and that means this person is ordering eggs. But when you order eggs, you don't just say eggs. You say, like, scrambled eggs, right? So if you put the jelly packet at 6 o'clock on the plate, that means you are preparing scrambled eggs for this person. Let me just say that the magic marker system 
There's a cheat sheet that exists at Waffle House. I've seen pictures of it online. These two pictures here are literally the only pictures on the internet of this. And I can't read all these words, but I will say that what you're about to see might be the most thorough presentation of the magic marker system <laughs> that has ever been done. But unless you get a job at Waffle unless House. Unless you get a job right. at Waffle House. So uh, I was talking about this to Sarah, and yeah, Sarah I says this wasn't invented by Waffle no, House. No, I, so I showed up today, and someone was like, let me tell you about this thing we're going to do at story time. So I am researching a talk that I'm doing at the Smithsonian uh, at the end of June. If you want to know more, I'm four pounds far on social media, and uh, you can sign up my email list at sarahlemon.com. But um, I was asked to research the Harvey girls, and the Harvey girls were young women that worked at a chain of restaurants called Harvey Houses. And this is broadly considered the, the earliest chain restaurant. They began in the 1880s. And they this guy, I don't remember Mr. Harvey's first name, but he was commissioned to provide good food at railway stations because people were by the 1880s we were completely interconnected with railroads people were traveling both for work and for tourism and for migration uh, and the food was terrible or completely inaccessible there was no food on the trains and when you showed up at the train stations you had 30 minutes to find something to eat before the train left without you so harvey houses basically started at chicago and covered all the major rail stops in the west but the trick of the Harvey houses is that you had 30 minutes. Trains came in, trains left. So you had to get your diners in and out in 30 minutes. So one of the things that they were famous for is devising these techniques to speed up the process. And one of the things they would do is when you sat down and they took your drink order, the Harvey girls, the servers, would move your cup and saucer, saucer to indicate which of five beverages you had selected. So I don't remember them all, but it was like, uh, if the saucer's upright in the cup, but on the saucer, it's tea. If you take the saucer away, it's coffee. If you take it, if you remove it completely, it's buttermilk. Again, with the buttermilk. Um, and there was like orange juice and water, I think was the last one. Don't move your cup. Don't move. And then the, the downside of this is that it was done at the table, so people would like adjust their cups and then end up getting the wrong beverage. But it was this one of the many ways they'd worked out that like the servers went around and just moved the cups really quickly, and then people came around the dining hall with those five beverages and knew what everybody wanted in advance. So this is a, I didn't know that this existed, so I'm super excited that there's this contemporary connection that is way more complicated than the Harvey House system. It's even more complicated than what I'm going to show you tonight. This is kind of like a, it's not quite a lie, but I'm glossing over a few things. So don't just roll into Waffle House and try to do this because it'll, it'll be like, I don't know, Italian and Spanish. It'll be fine, though. Okay, so <laughs> jelly is eggs. Down at the bottom, it's scrambled eggs. Move it to the top, sunny side eggs, sunny side up. Across the middle, we have over easy on the left, over medium in the middle, over well on the right. Now, here's the thing. Down here is supposedly poached eggs, but I don't think anyone's getting a poached egg at Waffle House. <laughs> I don't know why it's there. Uh, I couldn't understand what the abbreviation was right here, so I have no idea what that egg is. Um, if you only want egg whites, if you want no yolk, you will throw a spoon down on the plate as well. So this is over easy eggs because it's over on the left-hand side, and only egg whites, no yolk because that spoon is in the middle. Now, here's the thing. You can't make over easy eggs with only egg white. You can only make yeah, I know. Eggs. It was like when I made this, I was like, you can't do that. And I was like, ah, I don't really care. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I didn't like it's so it's symmetric there. I didn't want to put it at the bottom. It's going to be too cluttered. I mean, you okay. can't if you really want to humor somebody, but I would never do that. Okay. So when you order eggs, one order of eggs is actually two eggs because who would ever order three eggs or one egg? But if you have one of those people that does want three eggs or one egg, 
three eggs, called a triple, you will put a mustard packet on top of the jelly packet. If they only want one egg, you will switch that out with a ketchup packet. So a ketchup packet on top of a thing of jelly means exactly one egg. Now, because there are not that many condiments at Waffle House, uh, in different situations, actually there are a lot of condiments, but most of them are like Heinz 57 jar, it's fine. Um, because there are only so many condiments in packets, they do double duty. So for example, let's say we took away the jelly and we just had a ketchup on the plate, that would be a sirloin steak. <laughs> and if you go up and down on the plate, that is how cooked the dish is. Or how so medium is in the middle, well done is at the top, and a rare sirloin steak is at the bottom. So pop quiz for you. What would it be if I moved it up a little bit? Yeah, medium rare, excellent work. You all can work at Waffle House. <laughs> um, if you swap out the ketchup for a butter packet that is facing up, it is a porterhouse steak. If you flip it to be, oh no, sorry, it's a T-bone steak. If you flip the butter packet upside down, it's a porterhouse steak. But remember, we had our good friend two eggs with jelly, right? If underneath of that packet of jelly, you take a butter packet that is upside down, that becomes two eggs with dry toast. So toast that does not have <laughs> butter on it, you put a butter packet upside down, it's like negating the butter. Um, so for example, if we wanted to build a little tower and we had mustard on top of a thing of jelly on top of an upside down butter, that would be three eggs, uh, dry toast. It's in the middle, how are those eggs being prepared? Scrambled? Over medium, scrambled <sighs> at the bottom. Come on, get it together. Ah. So if you flip that jelly packet over because it's got two sides, suddenly you have wheat toast instead of white toast. So the default for the facing up jelly packet is white toast. If you flip the jelly packet upside down, it becomes wheat toast. So same thing we had before, mustard on top, then an upside down jelly packet, upside down butter packet, three eggs, dry wheat toast. And hey, we get meat on it, right? Like it's not a grand slam at Denny's, but you can still get like sauces and stuff like that. So. How do you determine <laughs> how do you determine the meat? Pickles, of course. So pickles, <laughs> pickles on the right right hand side of the plate are sausage. Pickles at the top are ham. Pickles at the bottom are bacon. And I could not read the words for pickles on the left hand side. So you will just be confused for the rest of your life. So for example, pickles at the top, jelly upside down in the middle, and ketchup on top means one egg, wheat toast, and ham. If you have a mayonnaise packet. It is a burger, specifically the quarter pounder burger. They also serve a half pound burger, but mayonnaise facing up uh, is a quarter pounder. If you move it up and down, that is also how well done it is. So in the middle, it is medium. If you flip that mayonnaise packet over, it becomes a chicken sandwich instead of a burger sandwich. If you put a little cube of ham on it, <laughs> just like chilling on the side, it, it means it's a chicken sandwich with bacon. You don't put pickles on it despite the fact that whenever you put pickles on it for uh, eggs, that's how you say it has bacon. If it's a sandwich, you put a little square ham on it. Uh, and then mustard upside, downside, is either pork chop or a country ham. So this does not include the waffles. There's a lot more about making waffles. Um, there's a lot more about, I don't know, um, how well scrambled the eggs are or the different ways you can prepare eggs on a sandwich. So how are we feeling about everything that we just learned? Great. We feeling okay? All right, so it turns out that we're at Waffle House, we're understaffed, 
we need some people to come up here in a competition to work the line. Are you, you want to volunteer? Anyone? I mean, we're going to have a cheat Let sheet. Let me give you Don't a little worry. more context. Don't yeah, you're going to have, he, someone's going to give you a dish, right? Yeah. You're going to have to place the order. And yeah. you, if you get it done first, you yeah. arrange your plate first, you put your hands up and say done. Yes. And at that point, second person can still finish, right? If they want mm-hmm. to, because the first person can be wrong. Basically, we'll check the, whoever's done first, we check their plate. And if you get it right, you win one of those authentic Waffle House mugs. And if you lose, you get a normal mug that I bought for two. So either way you win. Yeah. So I saw some hands already. Let's see who wants to come up. You want to come up? Come up. Come on up. Yep. Come on up, fella. Let's do this. So I think you should be the we judge. We need six people up here. Oh, we at the same time? Pe- no, I mean, it's good. We're going to have a line. We're factory style. Okay, okay, okay. So let's get two people on deck. Yes, sure. You two, come on up. You can come to this side. And then who else? Two more. Yes, Brave Soul in the back. I see you. Come on up. And then one more person. One more person. I'm just going to pick somebody. And it's going to be Tammy. <laughs> this is what you get Tammy, for being my friend, win, Tammy. We're going to be so unhappy. <laughs> come on, Tammy. Oh, don't make me win things. Don't make me sing. You're going to be great, Tammy. All right. Uh, there's a cheat sheet. There's a cheat sheet. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is going to be your cheat way. sheet. You're going to be, we're going to get two of you, you two, make your way over here. <laughs> All right. So I am going to hit next. A thing is going to show up in the upper left-hand corner, and it is going to say what you're making right there. So maybe you could twist this guy a little bit. It's important for egg whites, I guess. Um, All right. Oh, sorry. So I couldn't find mustard packets, even though I demanded them from it. I spent like $8 at McDonald's so I could get all these condiments. Um, I couldn't get any mustard packets, so we're using Splenda as mustard. I hope that's okay. And uh, <laughs> instead of a cube of ham, uh, we're going to use this ham-looking nine-sided die, which is And we can fine. all uh, row for charisma And I think later everything too. else is normal. Yeah, okay, are we ready? Are yeah. we ready? Yeah. All right. Get to it. One egg white over easy with ham and white toast. Raise your hand when you are done. One egg white over easy with ham and white toast. One egg white over easy, ham and white toast. Oh, okay. Hand over here first. We got a hand over here. Sarah, your judge. I don't remember a damn thing, Soma. You get to see the picture. Okay. Well, I mean, they looked <coughs> at the picture too, Soma. So. Uh, no, no, this picture, the cheating answer picture. Oh, okay. So this is already wrong because a spoon indicates egg whites. So sorry. Ouch. Ouch. I do. I'm so thank you for okay. playing. You still win. I'm sorry. I shamed you on stage. <laughs> I was actually honestly, I had just gotten excited that I knew the answer. So. All right. You got yes. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is right. We've got oh an eight. We've got a spoon. Ketchup. Pickle. You get a beautiful Waffle House mug. Here's your consolation prize. And you still get a nice diner mug. And there's your beautiful Thank Waffle you. House mug. Thank you for playing. Let's hear it for both. Both of these fine gents up here. Will to participate? All right. All right. Ladies, next up. Step on up. Clear your, your plates there. Are we ready? <laughs> All right. Go, medium well burger with bacon. 
I like that there are little there are little clues. Do are you? So are you? You're done. You're done. Who wants to count themselves as being done first? I think over here. Over yeah. here. Okay. Right. Okay. Here's what we're looking for. Yeah, Cuba ham. A medium well burger with bacon. Oh. Oh, uh, so the ketchup would be either a sirloin steak or a single egg. Medium well is where it is on is the plate. Right there. So medium is in the middle and medium well is a little bit higher. So I would say over here we this, have a winner. Yeah, congratulations. This is near perfect. Thank you so much for playing. You Thank you for being brave. You still get a prize though, don't worry. There's there your you mug. Go. You're welcome. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. All right. All right, final round. Let's set some records. Let's go. Tammy, if you win, you're in so much trouble. <laughs> I'm gonna be happy for you, Tammy. Okay, we're ready? Yep. Go. Three eggs, sunny side up, wheat toast, no Ooh. butter, and bacon. Three eggs, sunny side up, wheat toast, no butter. My and answer key is incorrect, but that's okay. This one is the hardest one. Just do it piece by piece. That's correct. It's eggs, but it's three eggs. Yeah, remember, no butter. It's no sunny butter. side up, and wheat it's toast. wheat toast, no butter, and bacon. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You guys, everyone's doing amazing. Cause I remember literally nothing that Soma said. I don't know what I was thinking about instead, but this is a lot. Okay, we've got a hand up over here. Soma, check it out. All right. This you keep is. Working. It's close. It's close, but it's not quite there. All right, keep working. We're giving you a second chance. Yeah, um, we're giving you a second chance because Tammy's a. We know her, so she's not. She's still to working. Win. Where's mustard? It's the Splenda packet. Splenda is mustard. Yeah. Why do you need mustard? <laughs> no, she does need it. It's fine. Are you done? Raise your hand. Do you think uh, you're done? Raise oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. This is almost right, but but you did say ketchup packet. How many eggs is this? One. One, yeah. So you're looking for a mustard instead. <laughs> uh, but you've got a but spoon on you your plate. you have a spoon, which means egg whites. Which means egg whites, and you have two things of two jellies on here. Tim, you're out of control tonight. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna call this, and I I'm gonna say that you sir, are the closest. Yeah. You it win the waffle house mug. We just need to cook another two eggs. Sturdy. Diner mug that will probably outlive us all. Thank you for playing. Thank you for. <laughs> I know it's yeah. just playing. You can do it. It's you can be. You know what? Your Take it home. You can paint on it's it. Like make a beautiful craft. Good game. Good game. Good game. Thank you, everybody. Thank you too. Thank you for participating. Um, do you have anything to say to wrap up uh, that public shaming? <laughs> Thank you for being competitive. I probably would have come up here and tried to do it too. Yeah. If uh, you want to learn anything else about Wava House or Denny's, stick around for another like uh, five or ten minutes and then take a break. Get yourself a drink, and we'll be back in about uh, five minutes. Get, I get would a say. drink. You're gonna need it. Yeah. <laughs> See you in a minute. All right. Fastest five or ten minutes that you've ever experienced in your life. All right, who here is from New York City? Yeah, literally no one, literally no one, right? So 
in theory, there's a land that exists outside of New York City. Um, I've heard rumors of it. I'm from Virginia. You'll see it later. Uh, so when I think of diners, I don't think of like things in the city. It seems like cheating. I think of places that are off of off ramps, things associated with highway, um, all of that stuff. So we are here today to talk about the two greatest places ever invented, Waffle House and Denny. So strap in. It's going to be exciting. Um, hands up if you've no applaud if you've ever been to a Denny's before. <laughs> right. So uh, applaud if you've been to a Denny's in New York City before. Okay. So like four people. So there are three. 3.5 Denny's locations in New York City. Um, there's one in East New York, there's one in Jackson Heights, and there's one on Staten Island. And you say, what about that 0.5? Is it the closed down Denny's from the financial district where you could buy a $300 Grand Slam that came with a bottle of champagne? And I say no, because not only did I not go there, but it also closed in 2018, RIP. So if you want like BYO champagne, I guess, I don't know. Um, the point five, anyone live around like Kensington? No, no, it's fine. There's a place called Denny's, Denny's Steak Pub. Um, you can't get steak there. It's just in the name. I don't know why. Um, it's, not, it's not an all-American chain restaurant. It's just like a bar where people hang out and, you know, you do whatever. It's in Kensington. It's right by the Church Ave stop. It's dark. We're not here to talk about that point five Denny's. We're here to talk about the like 1,700 other Denny's that exist, which is how many Denny's there are in uh, America. They're all over the place. They're everywhere. Look at this map I didn't make. It's blue stars everywhere. Um, so wherever we're from, we could probably get to a Denny's within you know a day of driving. It would be fine. So Denny's came together in 1953 in Lakewood, California. Uh, what was the name of the person that started Denny's? Yeah, incorrect. On all counts, it was a guy named Harold and a guy named Richard. Uh, and they're like, great. Um, so they were neighbors at some point. Uh, one of them sold a house to the other one and then was like, uh, you know what? Let's open a restaurant. And they were like, all right, let's do it. It sounds good. Um, so th their parents weren't named Denny. Like, their children weren't named Denny. Like, literally no one was named Denny. Um, what they originally opened wasn't called Denny's. It was called D Danny's Donuts. Bear in mind that their name was also not Danny. None of them, none of them were Dan's. Um, but it's alliterative, so you can't really hold it against them. So what happened was they opened this up as a 24-hour place. Um, and it was not really about donuts. It was more about coffee. Uh, so eventually they renamed it as Danny's Coffee Shop because it was a coffee shop and not really a donut place. Um, but as they started to expand more into like the roots of L.A., there was a place called uh, Dan's Coffee Dan's. And they were like, ah, oh, Coffee Dan's and Danny's Coffee Shop. That's so similar. And instead of rename it in like a reasonable way, they were just like, okay, well, we started with, Danny's Donuts and then turn it into Danny's Coffee Shops. Let's just call it Danny's <laughs> Coffee Shops. Like, who cares? Like, is it a name? I don't know. And then a few years later, they dropped the coffee shops part because they're like, we sell other things. And this is the absurd story of how Denny's got its name. Um, it never made any sense ever. Uh, 1977, fast forward a little bit, Grand Slam, the most important meal that you can get at Denny's, uh, which is two pancakes, 
two things of sausage, two uh, things of bacon, and two eggs, and then you can get some uh, toast. Oh, no. Oh, no. I didn't. It's fine. Everything's fine. Okay. <laughs> so here's what you get. I did include coffee and juice in this, and I'm really embarrassed now, but it'll be fine. So two pancakes, right? Two pancakes. You get two eggs, which can be done over easy, over medium, over hard, scrambled, sunny setup. You can get them other ways, but these are the ones that were available from the drop down on <laughs> Denny's website. Uh, two bacon strips, two sausage links, and either hash browns or toast, and your toast can be either white or wheat. And so I was looking at this, and I was like, I just took the GRE. I just read 100 books all about the GRE. So let's do some combinatorics <laughs> with the Grand Slam. So. Uh, if we have one different option for pancakes, and we have five different ways that eggs can be cooked, and we can either go sausage or bacon, all bacon or all sausage for three diff different options, we can have white or wheat or hash browns, which is another three options. How many possibilities do we have? Congratulations, you are correct. You get a mug. So. One times five times three times three, yes, that is 45 options. So how exciting, right? And you're like, this is the most exciting thing that's ever happened, the Grand Slam. And you're like, are you really that excited about Denny's? Are you excited enough to download an app and then go to every state in America and go <laughs> to a Denny's? And then if you go to, this was for a year, they had a thing called the 50 State Challenge where for a year if you use their app and you checked into every Denny's, or a Denny's in every single state, you would get gra free Grand Slams for life. <laughs> or if you did it with up to three other people, you get free Grand Slams for a year, which is probably much less than an entire life, so you should have done this. Uh, I Googled really hard to find out if anyone actually did it and anyone won, um, but I couldn't find out, and I researched this this weekend, so I couldn't call them and ask, RIP. Um, but here's the thing. It sounds pretty fun to do this. This was pretty popular. But what's the most popular thing about Denny's? Anyone here? No, no, no. No, no. It's their, their social media presence, let's be honest. <laughs> so they are so good. They, I first found out about them through like the Denny's Tumblr or something, which is a blog.denny's.com. It's not as good as it used to be. Um, but these are a bunch of tweets. They're pretty, they're pretty good. They're pretty solid. Um, <laughs> making, some, making some pretty good on-topic on uh, meme jokes. Uh, they're, they're good at their Tumblr, their blog, their Instagram. Like, definitely follow them everywhere. And so I'm researching, like, how amazing, and I'm just like, wow, they must have hired someone who was just a genius. And then he totally overturned all of like their old school social media and made like this wonderful new thing. And they're like, yeah, Erwin Penland was hired in you know, 2009. And I'm like, oh man, this guy must be like a real cool millennial who like gets the beat of how all this stuff works. And it's like, no, nah, it's just an ad agency, <laughs> which is probably, <laughs> probably full of cool millennials that get the beat or whatever, but it's fine. But they weren't always really cool. Sometimes they were even cooler than really cool, such as 2009 Dr. Pepper Presents Rockstar Favorites, which was a special menu that was at Denny's where they took all of their favorite <laughs> like pop punk musicians and then Katy Perry, and they, they all had different dishes, um, such as Good Charlotte's 
band of burritos, some 41, some which gym class heroes, Rascal Flats. It's amazing. So Taking Back Sunday had three dishes. They had a grilled chicken quesadilla. They had burger fries. They had a thing called an egg steak. Uh, plain white teas had the plain white shake. The internet was very confused as to why Taking Back Sunday was not the Taking Back Sunday. Like the, the but no, I guess plain white tea's got it, it's fine. And also, my favorite thing about this, the way you know it's from 2009, is it says to get all the latest MP3s. And it's like, when's the last time anyone used anything that was not Spotify? So I scrolled down this menu in a secret way so you couldn't see the very top of it because the best part of it is the Who Burrito branded by Hoobastank. <laughs> and I listened, I listened to a Hoobastank song and I was like, I've literally never heard of who was staying before in my life, but I just know that I hate them because of their name. But then on top of, on top of all of this, uh, Jewel shows up <laughs> with, her, with her acoustic smoked chicken quesadilla. So I don't know why they were like, and Jewel, and Katy Perry, and they had Katy Perry work a shift at a Denny's. It's cool. Um, but the, the thing about this is, this is over, right? This is ancient history, it's long gone but people still burn for the Who Burrito. They love that Who Burrito. There's this petition on change.org. There are numerous Facebook groups. You can, you can search on Twitter for Who Burrito and there are still results. Um, I'm not a perfect person, but this was by all means a perfect burrito. This burrito belongs in the hearts and stomachs of Americans and everyone else the world over. So I think it was just like a burrito that had barbecue sauce on it, but that's fine. So I spent a lot of time at Denny's as a youth, um, and this was my Denny's. This was Route, route 3 Denny's um, in Spotsylvania, Virginia, technically Fredericksburg if you cheat by looking at the thing up there, but I'm really from Spotsylvania. Um, so I would travel, it's right by the mall, it was wonderful. I loved it, spent a lot of time there. My friends get in, getting in trouble for smoking clove cigarettes, uh, as Sarah mentioned before. But here's the thing, not all my friends liked Route 3 Denny's. Some of them liked Route 1 Denny's. <laughs> and so there was like a big battle between Route 1 Denny's and Route 3 Denny's. And then one day we decided like, it's okay, we can get over this. We're just gonna go to Waffle House instead. <laughs> um, now, if you pay attention to the icon in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen, uh, you can see that actually what's happening as we go from Route 1 Denny's to Waffle House is we're literally just turning around and facing the other direction because <laughs> it was right across the street because all these places are built like right off of off ramps because you're like driving around and you're like, oh, I got to get food from Waffle House because it's the most delightful thing in the world. All right, so uh, who's been to Waffle House? <laughs> wow, it seems like more people than Denny's. Are we all from the South? Question mark. Um, so Waffle House is generally uh, in this, I mean, it, it is in the South. Um, Segway, Segway. What I do for a living is not give talks about Waffle House. Uh, I run a data journalism program at Columbia. And so I have two data sets that I use all the time to teach my students about data analysis. One of them is a list of countries uh, with their continents and GDPs and life expectancies and you can slice it a bunch of different ways and group it and like averages and like learn all kinds of stuff. But then when it comes time to learn how to make maps, I'm just like, there's only one thing we're ever gonna map and it's waffle houses all the time. It's nothing but waffle houses. Um, and so I have homework where I'm like, are you doing this, you know, geographic stuff with waffle houses? And so 
it's just Waffle House map, Waffle House map, Waffle House map. It's just like Waffle House maps all the time. And my students are probably like 70% international. So when you know they go back to their home countries and they're like, what did you learn about America? Because my program is really intensive and they're working all the time. They're probably just like Waffle House, centered in Atlanta. And then as you get further away from Atlanta, there are less of them. That's true. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't say this. These maps are really ugly. Um, because if you look at the top of them, they're flat. This is the fact you're going to take home to bother you about things for the rest of your life. So it's a flat line at the top of the United States. Uh, the shape of the Earth is a sphere, but when you look at a map, it is flat. So you have to project this sphere onto a flat surface. Um, and these horrible maps uh, are all using a certain projection called the Mercator projection, which is horrible and terrible. And it makes a flat, somewhat frowny looking thing on the top of America, it looks terrible. The one everyone should always use is called the Albers projection. So if you see, it's got like a nice gentle curve. It's kind of like a smiley face up at the top of America. So every time you see a map of the United States, look at the top of the map and be like, is it smiling at me? And if it's smiling at you, you know it's the Albers projection. You're like, all right, I got this, it's good. All right, segue over. Um, <laughs> So when I teach my students about why they should love Waffle House, despite the fact that they're being graded on it, I'm like, it has fun architecture. Even though it's called a Waffle House, you're probably getting hash browns. P.S. called Waffle House because that was the highest profit item on the menu. And they're like, got to advertise it somehow, so let's put it in the name. Uh, it's open 24-7, 365. It's open on holidays. Uh, the executives also go to work on holidays. They kind of like have solidarity. They probably go home early, though, let's be honest. Um, but the one thing that really gets them is this thing called the Waffle House Index, where uh, FEMA, once upon a time, um, uh, there was a guy who's driving around who was doing some FEMA work, and he kept stopping, or he was, he was, it was uh, post uh, hurricane, and he's driving around, and he starts to notice that even if most places are closed in an area, or all the places are closed in an area, Waffle House is probably open. And it probably maybe has a limited menu, maybe it's running off of a generator. Um, but they really try their best to stay open as much as possible. They have like a disaster response team they send out. Um, and they're really serious about being open all the time. Um, if you get to an area and Waffle House is closed, it's like a train wreck. And you're like, send all your resources to this area, because <laughs> like shit's real bad there, because Waffle House is closed. So they have this thing called the Waffle House Index, where they can rate areas based on how the Waffle Houses are doing. So green means they're open with a normal menu. Yellow means they're open with a limited menu. And red is if Waffle House is closed. And everything is bad. And so the guy who came up with this um, was being appointed to be the head of FEMA or something by Obama. And then they came to him and they're like, look, what is Waffle House paying you to do this? <laughs> And he was like, I'm not sponsored. This is just like a really good way to figure out how bad an area is. So now he's the head of FEMA or something. It's wonderful. Um, so Waffle House uh, is from Atlanta, Georgia. It was invented by these two guys. Um, and, you know, like I said, uh, or, oh, wow, this is all the stuff I said before. It's fine. So one of them uh, was like a business guy, and the other guy was a regional manager of this place called Toddle House, which is just... <laughs> The cutest looking place in the world is, I, it's not a picture. I've seen pictures and they don't look as nice like little cottages, but it's fine. Um, but I did find a lot of really fun, fun pictures of sit-ins that happen in toddle houses in Atlanta. And there's like a whole, uh, whole bunch of like racism stuff I could be talking about right now about Denny's and Waffle House, but I'm just gonna skip over that a little bit. 
but these are wonderful pictures. Um, and so the guy said, he's like, look, I'm regional manager of a restaurant. Uh, you have a bunch of money because I just bought a house from you. You build a restaurant and I'll show you how to run it. And the guy's like, great, this is wonderful. Let's do it. So they opened with 16 items on the menu. This picture has more than 16 items, um, but it's from the same year that they opened. I guess they expanded their menu. Like I said, they named it Waffle House because waffles were the most profitable item on the menu. And so I, I'm on Google image search and I'm like, waffles, money. And I get like 100 <laughs> stock images of just like waffles that robbed a bank or have a lot of money or have too much money or they've died from money. And it's just, I'm real confused about it. It's fine. I don't understand it, but that's okay. So probably the most popular thing that you're going to get at Waffle House, not actually waffles, is probably going to be hash browns. So when, when you get them, um, you can get them, yeah, scattered, covered, peppered. They're all these crazy words. You're not like with onions, right? You're not like put cheese on it. No, they, they don't put up with that. They say you can have it be scattered, smothered, covered, chunked, diced, peppered, capped, topped. Country, I actually didn't know that country existed. I just, I wasn't paying attention because I love sausage gravy too much. So the big question I have here is, how many different orders of hash browns <laughs> are possible at Waffle House? We have nine different options. And it's yes or no to each of them. You can shout out at any point unless you already won something. It is 512 because it's 2 times 2 times 2 times 2, nine, two to the ninth. Uh, so 512 different orders. Granted, it is more than this. If you go online, a lot of people fight about it because it's like, do you put Tabasco on it? Um, do you put uh, Heinz 57 on it? Is there ketchup on it? So people get real, real fired up. <laughs> so I would say the point of Waffle House, though, you don't necessarily, I mean, you go there to eat food, sure, but it's also like a fun or the interesting thing about Waffle House. It's like a fun community place where all kinds of people from all walks of life go there, like parents after soccer practice. You want to be drunk, but you're like 18, so you're there at night, but then there are also real life drunk people there. Uh, and then like, I don't know, everyone that works there is probably on drugs. Like it's a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, and one might even call it a third place if they had been to grad school at some point for whatever. And so usually I'm up here and you're like, oh, that's like something someone might write a paper about. And I'm like, you're right. Uh, so I spend most of my time doing talks about science here. So I read a lot of science papers about stuff. And so I was like, are there any papers that were written about Waffle House? And so most of them are about disaster response. Um, but there's a great one called She Just Called You Honey, My Quandary at Waffle House <laughs> um, by Brett Lunsford. And it's just like, it's not about science. It's about what happens when someone from California moves to the south and is like really confused about what happens when you're at a diner and someone calls you honey. But I'll just say, I went to California and suddenly every man called me like bro all the time and I was really confused <laughs> about what was happening. So who knows? So in this, it, it starts with his wife not being able to understand someone because of their accent uh, at a Wendy's drive-through because she's trying to order a salad and they don't know what kind of dressing to give her and she's really confused because they don't understand or she doesn't understand when the guy says, what kind of dressing do you want? And I'm just like, is this an extended humble brag about getting a salad at Wendy's? I'm not sure. <laughs> so <coughs> it's just, it's a wonderful paper that has plenty of like interesting things in it, but I'm just going to highlight the things that I think sound goofy. Um, 
In this essay, I will examine a particular linguistic strategy that I have observed in waitresses at Waffle House, the use of the epithet honey. Discourses rarely have single interpretations, but by carefully examining a particular discourse, one can distill possible interpretations of how it functions rhetorically. I see, no, that's the end of the sentence. Everything is right there. One sees every mistake as the cooks and waitresses perform in the panopticon. Yet there is still the creeping suspicion that the performance is just that, an illusion. Thus the kitchen functions as simulacrum, appearing to be real but serving only to maintain the illusion of reality. When someone calls another honey, they generally have some kind of claim upon them. One is someone else's honey. In other words, I am now her customer. She is not my waitress. I recognize a kind of relationship being signified by her, her choice of terms that I had no part in constructing other than my presence and choice of dining establishment. My own identity contradicts my role when the waitress calls me honey. I simultaneously uh, be who is served and he who is possessed by the server. <laughs> Stellar. And there's more. It just it goes on. It goes on forever. Uh, but the best part is where he's like, as a cultural outsider, which is said about four times in the paper, um, to yet another, it may just be what waitresses call you in this whole exercise is to overthink the obvious. And I'm just like, yes. <laughs> but it's, it's good. It's a fun paper. It has four pages of footnotes. So and you can actually download it if you want to read it yourself. It's at omgmsg.com forward slash honey dash quandary dot PDF. It's definitely worth it. It's real fun. So. Uh, why is Waffle House good? A, my students have to learn about it or else they fail. B, this paper is amazing. C, uh, not their social media though. It's pretty boring. It's just like, ah, uh, we run a social media account. It's not cool millennials. But, but, here's the thing. I was like, oh, Denny's has that Rockstar menu. Does Waffle House have a Rockstar menu? Look, Waffle House doesn't have to give shit about anything. Like. They just exist and people go there, whereas like Denny's has to remodel all the time. Waffle House is gonna be Waffle House. But in searching for like Waffle House jams, I came across Waffle House Records, <laughs> which exists to just put songs in their jukebox. So they get about 1% of plays, so they're not necessarily hits. Um, but you know, Raisins in My Toast, Waffle House for You and Me. Um, they're country songs, pop songs. One of them is a gospel song. It's incredible. Um, they're just, they're so good. And then there's this one, 844, 739 ways to eat a hamburger. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna do the reverse of what I did before. I'm gonna find out all the ways he ate, ate a hamburger, right? And so I'm like, okay, this number of options, this number of options, this, that, and I start doing the math. And I'm like, I got an easier way to do this because the GRE book taught me tricks, right? And so remember when we did this, and we did, we had 512, and it was just like two times two times two, this is, it. It looks uh, aged because it's historic. It's from, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes ago. So if you plug this into a prime numbers calculator, a prime factors calculator, you can get the prime factorization of the number, which more or less is gonna be like the yes or no's. You can combine some of those twos to be four options, whatever, it doesn't matter. But here's the thing. If you take 844, 739, and you plug it into a prime number calculator, the prime factorization is seven and 120,677. So I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say that that's bullshit because there are not that many number, that nothing has 120,000 ways to be done at Waffle House. Um, and additionally, when the Jerry book said the Jerry only teaches me ways to take the Jerry, bullshit because I learned how to call bullshit on this song at Waffle House. So here's what I'll say. In closing, Waffle House, <laughs> Waffle House for you and me, it's a wonderful place. Um, uh, Anthony Bourdain went there for the first time 
um, in 2016, and I'm going to take his words on Waffle House as my closing statement, uh, which is, Waffle House is indeed marvelous, an irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts, where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. But Denny's is still way better at social media. <laughs> it's fine. Thank you very much. That's all we got for you. Couple very quick things. Uh, you should follow our Facebook page at Master Social Gastronomy. We're gonna put I'll put the J Star article up there. I also put a podcast about the Waffle House in Index up there, which is really great. And we'll put our other like primary sources and articles up there. We are back at the end of June, the last Monday in June, talking about meats analogs, everyone's favorite not meats. And I'm gonna say that's it. Oh, and someone and I are wearing the same shoes. I noticed. <laughs> there they are. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. <laughs>